Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church, and I'm thankful uh, to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Deuteronomy chapter 31. We're going to be in verse 6, and we're going to be in other passages as well this morning, talking about the issue of courage, courage that counts in 2022. While considering whether we would meet this morning, I remembered that I was talking about courage this morning. Well, I kind of put myself in a rough spot there, so here we are. I'm just kidding. There's no snow. <laughs> We're in the middle of a series called New Year, Same You, talking about the change that God calls us to have in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. And so much of the change that we seek to implement in our lives at the beginning of every single year fails because we seek to modify our behavior rather than look to the change that God would have us make. And that is an internal change that works its way out in our lives through the power of God's Holy Spirit as He conforms us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, as we willfully submit ourselves to Him. And we began by talking about the Word of God without which change is impossible. And then last Sunday, we talked about leaving a legacy uh, by experiencing, remember, and remembering and teaching the next generation what God has done in our lives, what God has done through the gospel. And as I said today, I want to talk about the issue of courage that counts in 2022. I want to talk about what godly Christian courage is going to look like in the coming days. Christians are never called to be cowards. Cowardice is a fruit of sinful flesh. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. Courage, though, can be placed in the wrong things. We can fight for the wrong things. We can believe the wrong things. We can go after the wrong things. And so I want to be sure we talk about what Scripture presents us as living courageously for. And what are the things that we have to see on the horizon to know how we are to live out courageously in this age at the end of the book of Revelation? The list of the people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, one of the first things that the Apostle John writes about is the cowards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Cowardice can be contagious, and my fear is that in evangelicalism especially, uh, we have a great deal of soft men leading, and we need to displace all of them. And we need to be men of courage. We need to be women of courage. We need to have the same courage that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had as He was willing to endure the shame of the cross for our sin. We're in a culture that is increasingly embracing ungodly philosophy and ungodly ideologies while all the time rejecting the call of God, rejecting the Word of God. And we must be prepared and we must be ready and willing to engage in ungodly culture on all fronts. But we must do it according to God's design. We must do it according to God's commands. And yes, we must do it according to God's words. I want to read from Deuteronomy as the nation of Israel was on the precipice of the promised land. This is what God said to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The nation of Israel had failed about 40 years before this. They let their fear displace their courage. They looked at the strength of the people in what the land that God had promised to them, and they said, they're too great. We can't overcome them. 
They'll defeat us easily. And because of their lack of faith in God's ability and God's willingness to keep his promises and God's ability and willingness to be with them as they stood against the Canaanites, God judged them by making them wander in the wilderness. An entire generation died. An entire generation did not see the promise of God come to fruition. And it's my contention that Deuteronomy 31.6, as it is restated over and over throughout the Old Testament, as it's restated throughout the prophets, and it is a mainstay of the attitude of the New Testament, that we are called to be strong and courageous. And that this same promise that was given to Israel is obviously given to us, as the book of Hebrews says, that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. Jesus in the Great Commission says he'll be with us to the end of the age. That God, as we stand, as we seek to be courageous in a very non-Christian culture, that he will stand with us. But I want to warn you, number one this morning, there will always be resistance to following Jesus. There will always be resistance to following Jesus. The need for courage assumes resistance. And so God isn't looking to Israel in Deuteronomy 31 and saying, be strong and courageous because it's going to be really easy. If it's going to be easy, if there's not going to be any resistance, why would you need to be strong and courageous? Why would you need courage if no one's ever going to stand against you? What would be the usefulness of strength if you never needed to fight? The necessity of strength and the necessity of courage presupposes that someone at some point, in many points, will stand against you, that there will be resistance to the mission that God has called you to live. There will be resistance to the promises that God has necessarily said will come true, but God's promise And his command to not be fearful shows that you will win. There will be a fight. There will be resistance. But we will win. Israel would win if they trusted the promises of God. The Old Testament shows us that anyone that stood against the nation of Israel, no matter how great their army, no matter how many chariots they had, no matter how great their ability to fight, they were nothing according to God. There were even times in the Old Testament, I love these stories, where God says, there are too many soldiers here, send some of them home. You're going to think you won this battle. I want there to be so few soldiers standing against so many that it's obviously the Lord that's winning the fight. Do you possess in your life the courage to trust God to that degree? Do you trust God to the level where you will not change your beliefs to pacify a sinful culture? Do you trust God that you will not adjust your view of sin simply because an unbelieving world hates you for it? God tells us be strong and courageous because there will be resistance. The problem that many people have is that when they think about the promises of God, you assume that since God promises something, it's going to come easy. The Scripture tells us nothing to make us think that. The Scripture actually tells us over and over and over again that we must trust in the promises of God because so many will come against you when you are following Jesus Christ. God notes that there is no need for fear, though, for those that oppose you because if you stand, if you have courage, they will fall. 
I realize that this statement is as true today as it was for the nation of Israel. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be need strength. You're going to be needing courage, especially when the wickedness of our day seeks to prevail through so many false ideologies that the coming generation are seeking to embrace because of their lack of belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be those that leave a legacy of strength. We must be those that leave a legacy of courage so that when all of the false gods are shown to be completely impotent, that there will be somewhere for unbelievers to go to when they want a real God. And that is what we have in Jesus Christ. But I want to talk to you about the two types of resistance that you're going to face because the first one has nothing to do with any external force. The first resistance that all of us face is a resistance from within. We have to deal with the resistance that takes place inside of us. That's where the fear is. The sin that seeks to destroy God's design is also inside of you. From temptation to sin to temptation to cower in fear, faith demands a courage that leads you to repentance against the resistance that you're going to face from within. Do not ever allow fear to prevent you from living out what faith in the gospel will necessarily call you to. For some of you, you have a fear from within because you fear losing your livelihood. I understand that. You fear ridicule. You fear losing your placement in this world. You fear so many things. For some of you, it's as simple. You're afraid your kids aren't going to call you over the weekend if you're not politically correct. Let God be true, though every man a liar, even if it's a relative friend. No one has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ because they loved someone else's cowardice so much. No one has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ because they said, you know what, those Christians, they got one thing, they're all cowards. I need a little bit of that in my life. No one is afraid of an army of Barney Fife's. <laughs> no one envies that posture. No one says, I want to be on that side. You want to know why they don't want to be on that side? Because cowards lose. Cowards always lose. A cowardly faith is unattractive. But a strong and courageous faith shows that you trust in God. How may God work if I am willing to make a stand? Many live in fear of what might happen. So many avoid sharing the gospel with friend foe alike, because you're afraid of how they might respond negatively. But here's the question, what if they repent? What if they come to faith in Jesus Christ? So many refuse to defy an unbelieving world's lie about love. Love is love is the most meaningless statement I've ever heard in my life. If your love does not have an objective root, it gives you human autonomy to define it however you want. And when it has no objective root, it's meaningless. It's worthless. It changes the shifting sands on the sea. And so when you decide love is different, well, you can just walk away. There's no such thing as unconditional love in that light. But we must define love by how God defines it. And we must be willing to stand against anyone who will change God's unchanging definition of what love is. Are you prepared for the coming wave 
that will seek to redefine because it's going to come from the left and it's going to come from the right. They're all cowards. But we serve the living God who's unchanging. We serve a living God who's incorruptible. We serve a living God who will not compromise and change his definitions for anyone. Israel failed because they didn't trust God. And they were willing to just submit. They were willing to give up on the promises of God. Do you trust God more than you fear man? It's a question that we must all ask ourselves. Don't be afraid of what might happen because you assume you are not strong enough. God is strong enough. Because what might happen might be God delivers on his promises. Unbelievers may threaten to take something away from you that you hold dear, but God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God can take care of each and every one of us more than we can take care of ourselves. And some of you are not posturing yourselves to experience a supernatural move of God on your behalf. Therefore, you will never experience a supernatural move of God on your behalf. You won't see how God can be the great provider for you because you're too afraid he won't provide for you. So you seek over and over again to provide for yourself. And when you are worried about providing for yourself, you will not stand on the day that you need to stand. You will cower in fear because you're afraid of what they can take from you. There's an old story. I don't know if it's a legend. I don't know if it really happened, but I love the story. It was an evangelist named John R. Rice, and he was leading a crusade. And he was at a diner many, many decades ago. He was in a diner in a downtown area with another pastor. And they ate, and they finished their meal after the sermon was preached. And they walk outside, and a young man comes up to him, sticks a gun in his gut, and says, I'm going to blow your brains out, sir. And so first, John R. Rice looks at him and says, I think your geography's off, son. <laughs> but then secondly, he looked him in the eyes, and he said, son, are you threatening me with heaven? <laughs> now, I don't know if that's a good strategy when you're getting mugged. <laughs> but as the story goes, the young man was so confused, he ran away in fear because he'd never met a man with courage before. He'd never met a man that could stand against him before. Friends, the evil ones of this age, when they see real courage, they will flee with their demons. Do you trust God enough to resist against the fears that you have inside of you? But secondly, there's going to become resistance from outside. We're headed into an era where you are going to have, you're not going to have to seek out resistance, it's going to seek you out. We're already seeing this with mandates of different degrees. Jesus never hid from this type of resistance, though. In John 15, 19 to 20, Jesus is giving his farewell garden discourse to his disciples, and he warns them that following him is never going to be the easy road that some of you think it's going to be. Jesus looks at him and says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore what? The world hates you. So if you don't like Christians, that's okay. I'm prepared for that. Jesus warned me. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, what are they going to do? They're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus warns us, unbelievers, they don't get it. They're going to stand against you because they don't have the same Holy Spirit that you have. They're deceived in their sin. 
Do not be deceived in your sin. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're facing resistance on account of the word of God, stand. Continue to be courageous. Do not cower in fear. Those that reject the gospel will hate followers of Jesus Christ. We do not live in an age where those that reject the gospel respect our morality. We do not live in an age where those who, respect, who reject the gospel respect our conviction. We live in an age where they call sin righteousness and righteousness sin, where they call hate love and love hate. We live in an upside down world and we must be prepared for what is going to happen. Are you willing to walk down the road where you are labeled hateful because of your convictions where the gospel is concerned? Are you willing to risk worldly prestige because of your obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Friends, I'll tell you and I'll warn you, a world that embraces blasphemy will be ready to persecute Christians. But do you trust God for a reward? Do you trust God for reward? If the scriptures are true, God will reward those who follow him. We must live our lives in a posture ready to receive the reward of God at any given time because the world will try to take away their reward all the time. Are we prepared for that? Specific example in our day and age is happening right now in Canada. Canadian government just passed Bill C-4. It's a strange name. I don't know if they thought that through. It's a bill that outlaws what is called conversion therapy that would seek to aid homosexuals to embrace heterosexuality. Now that, I'll tell you, that controversial therapy may be something that there can be disagreement on in practice, but the scope of that law is not about a controversial practice. It is so broad that it also applies to those that would label homosexuality a sin and tell people that they must repent of that sin. And so, this morning, many pastors all over the world, even in Canada, are risking their livelihoods to preach biblical morality. I want to be honest with you, come in that with some presuppositions. Let me be clear. Homosexuality is a sin in orientation and practice according to the Bible. I'm not one of those that's going to qualify that. If you believe the Word of God, it is a sin both in orientation and in practice, it must be repented of if you're going to follow Jesus Christ. In order to follow Jesus, the ultimate hope of God's design must be your ideal. Ultimate hope in that design means you will follow Jesus. And yes, it does give you hope for embracing God's heterosexual vision. Such a statement. Think about this. The statement that I just made is potentially illegal according to that new law. I pray for Canadian pastors to ignore that law. You won't hear me say this much, but I pray there is an outbreak all over Canada of outlaws in the pulpit. But it's not just in Canada. In West Lafayette, Indiana, and here in the United States. Now, if you don't know anything about geography, Indiana, guess what? It's one of ours. <clears throat> it's one of ours, friends. I don't really know where it is. The city council of West Lafayette, Indiana is seeking to fine unlicensed counselors at a rate of $1,000 per day if they give counsel to minors seeking advice about sexual orientation. Now, 
What you don't understand about that is that it is directly pointed at church ministries and biblical counseling. They only want people going to counselors that will lead them into sexual deviancy. We must be courageous. Friends, the government does not have the authority to regulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they make it illegal, if they make anything illegal, if they want to find me, find me. I will not stop preaching because I trust the reward of God more than I want the reward of men. You can tell me something about the separation of church and state all day, but most people only want it to apply to the church. They don't want to realize that the state wants to take over the church. No, you have no authority here. Only the word of God has authority here. When the state attempts to be the church in ungodly ways, we must be courageous. We must protest the state. And I will tell you, our government is getting more and more wicked by the day and opposing Christianity more and more by the day. And we must build a faith that is worth defending. We must. Courage deficits are rooted in discipleship deficits. Those who are not seeking proactive discipleship, friend, I tell you, you won't stand. You won't stand. If you don't have a faith that is growing, you won't have courage that is growing. You must actually follow Jesus Christ into the environments that he calls you for you to have courage. And I'll tell you, number two this morning, courage requires a defense and an offense. Courage requires a defense and an offense. The first step to courage is always discipleship. The courage comes necessary when people notice a difference that faith is making in your life. So if faith isn't making any difference in your life, you probably won't need courage because nobody's going to wonder. Nobody's going to think you're different. Nobody's going to notice. When we're thinking about defending the faith, we often think about 2 Peter 3.15. This text is about defending the lifestyle of following Jesus. This is about the factual nature of our faith and the fact that Christianity claims to have the market cornered on objective truth and that that is a controversial thing in a culture that rejects truth. Text tells us, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to what? Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So the assumption here is that if you build your life around the Christian worldview, an unbelieving world will have questions. But here's where we make the mistake. We read that, and we assume that it's going to provoke questions, and they're going to ask those questions very nicely. <laughs> we read that, and we assume they're going to be like, well, you've got a lot of hope in you. Please tell me more. Friends, it doesn't always work out that way. Even in the context of 2 Peter, it wouldn't even make sense for Peter to have meant that. 2 Peter is written to a group of Christians who were literally run out of their homes because of their faith in Jesus Christ, under the threat of death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so when Peter writes this, when he says they're going to ask you about the faith that you have, he means that those questions may come in the form of accusation. They may come in the form of blame. They may come in the form of vitriol, but our definition of love will be questioned because God gets to design and define what faith, what love, what hope is actually all about. Now, friend, we respond in gentleness and we respond in respect, 
Why? Because we have full confidence in the truth of God. If somebody tells me they're an atheist, I don't get defensive. That's your problem, not mine. I know that God exists, and I assume you're wrong. And so I'm just going to inform you of why you're wrong. I don't get defensive because I have truth on my side. You are the one that is foolishly rejecting truth. The book of 2 Peter is written to these people who are under persecution, lives being threatened. And Peter says, when they question you, when they accuse you, when they blame you, just defend the faith. Leave the results up to God. Leave the results up to whatever God is going to have happen in that moment. Because as we saw in the New Testament, when Christians defended their faith in Jesus Christ, you know what tended to happen? Other people tended to become followers of Jesus Christ. Potentially, the reason that you are not seeing this type of evangelistic lifestyle, the reason that you're not seeing people come to faith because of your witness is because you're not standing against anything. Because you're not offering a reasonable explanation of the hope that is inside of you. And a lifestyle that defends the faith is one that believes the gospel and then orders the reality that you live for around that truth. It assumes that God is the Lord of every inch of life and every square inch of this world. And it produces a gospel culture around you like we talked about last week. But here's the deal. There is no part-time Christian with a faith worth defending. If you're just a part-time Christian, if it's just a hobby to you, if it's just a part of your life and he's not the Lord of your entire life, who wants that? Who needs that? But it's not just something we defend. Now, something that is controversial in our day and age is going on the offense with your faith. We think that we're just supposed to sit in our houses until they come and start asking us questions. No, that's not the biblical example we have. And I want to quickly give you two biblical examples of what it looks like to go on the offense. Going on the offense always looks like exposing the futility of false gods, exposing the absolute impotence of false gods. We cannot go out into the world treating the gospel as though it is a truth among many truths. We cannot go out into the world with a a gospel that is on neutral territory where truth is concerned among many possible philosophies and ideologies. We go out into the world to show all of your gods are fake and you need to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scripture does not put the claims of Christianity as equal to the false claims of secularists. In 2 Kings chapter 18, the prophet Elijah puts Ahab on notice that he needs to obey God rather than the false god Baal. So he challenges the prophets of Baal, one of my favorite narratives of the Old Testament. He challenges the prophets of Baal to a prayer contest. I don't know if that would work out in our culture, but that's what Elijah did. And Elijah, of course, wins the contest. But note Elijah's strategy. He goes on the offense to show not just that Baal is weaker than God, but that Baal is completely impotent, false, and untrue. Look at what Elijah does in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 26. He says, They took the, the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And I think the, the, the author uses the word limp on purpose. 
we have a second service, I might not say that. Verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Now, in the Hebrew, it doesn't sound so nice. It means maybe he's using the potty. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Note Elijah's language, how disrespectful it is. Note that Elijah isn't trying to be nuanced. <laughs> Note that Elijah has no concern for being winsome. <laughs> Note Elijah's point is, hey, Baal doesn't exist, idiot. He's not listening. He's not going to do anything. His entire strategy was to show the utter foolishness of considering trusting Baal. Elijah sought to humiliate the prophets of Baal. Acts 17 is often used to show Paul's evangelistic strategy of appealing to the cultural trends in order to win people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be honest, there's a good bit of strategy employed here. But note Acts 17, starting in verse 22. The text says this, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, which is often called Mars Hill, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, note this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, the language that Paul uses there in the final two verses, verse 24 and 25, is not accidental. He direct, he's standing, if you're on the Oropagus, it's just below a temple called the Parthenon. At that point in history... The Parthenon was a temple to the goddess Athena. And so what would happen in the temple to this goddess Athena, which is called the Parthenon, is that the priests of Athena would go in, offer her treasure all day long. They would offer her worship all day long. This was even a place where temple prostitution would take place all day long, seeking to win the favor of the goddess Athena in Greece. And so what Paul is doing as he stands in earshot of that temple, he's pointing out, you have a temple where you believe a God lives. You have a temple where you believe God is served by human hands all day, every day. My God doesn't need a temple. My God doesn't need human hands to conjure anything from him. My God is far superior to your weak God. Paul is employing a strategy of humiliation where Athena is concerned. He's calling the entire system of Greece where, where uh, pantheism is concerned completely bankrupt. He's showing there is one true God and you need him. You don't need all of these false gods. Many of us in our days, we are being trained by absolute cowards as to what it means to defend the faith in Jesus Christ. We somehow believe that if we are cowardly long enough that our cowardice will be respected because we're such nice guys and everybody's going to become a follower of Jesus because who doesn't want a nice guy on their side? 
It's not the strategy of the Scriptures. Many in our era are very afraid of confrontation. We're afraid and we're soft. We don't take stands against false gods. We don't take stands against perversion because we're afraid that will offend them too much. We're hoping that people will just accidentally start believing in Jesus. It's not the way that it works. You're afraid of rejection. You're afraid that your kids are going to abandon you. You're afraid that you might be labeled one of those fundamentalist Christians. I wear that as a mark of pride. Have some courage. You do not win people to faith by never standing for anything. Friend, I'll tell you, don't go looking for fights, but don't cower in the corner living in denial that you don't really need to be strong. You don't really need to be courageous. You don't really need to show people that believing lies invites the wrath of God. Friends, the false gods of our era are a postmodern version of secularism that anoints the self as God and markets in perversion. Think our westernized mentality looks at people in the East that would actually build statues that are false gods. And we remember the god Baal and we're like, they would really build these Asherah poles. They would really build these statues. How dumb do you have to be to think a statue is God? Well, how dumb do you have to be to think you're God? That's the Western idolatry that we struggle with here, is that we have false gods, it's just us. And we anoint perversion as being worshipful towards God. We anoint changing your gender identity as being worshipful towards the postmodern gods. But it all invites the wrath of God. We should fight the culture war as any false god is to be fought. We must have a bold commitment to faith. We must have a bold commitment to the truth of Jesus Christ. Number three, this morning, Christian courage is rooted in God's promises. Christian courage is rooted in God's promises. Courage is a fruit of faith in Jesus Christ. Faith produces courage. Cultural commentator Aaron Wren has pointed out that in the last decade, culture has made a shift from viewing Christianity as a neutral thing to viewing it as a very negative thing. Society, in large part, has a negative view of Christianity. What was once viewed as good in the sense of morality is now viewed as a public nuisance and even a violation of the moral order. Therefore, friends, I'll tell you, if we're going to endure in faith in Jesus Christ, we must be willing to stand against the tide of culture that will view morality as shifting sand under the feet of autonomous human beings. What God calls evil, this culture calls good. What God calls good, this culture calls evil. We're already seeing this happen. We're already seeing those without seek us compromising what is good. But here's the deal. We are also seeing people seek to infiltrate the church with these false ideologies that seek to crumble what the Word of God is very clear on. They want to bring down the patriarchy, but what they're actually saying is, we want to bring down the Word of God. They want to bring down the nuclear family and replace it with a new vision for family, but what they're really saying is, we want to bring down the Word of God. They're saying that we want to plan our families, and we want to have women's reproductive rights, but what they're really meaning is, we want to bring down the Word of God, and we want to murder babies. It's not lost on me that today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. We must be those people who will always fight against the stemming tide of abortion in our culture. Abortion is a heinous evil, friend. 
If you are pro-choice and you are in here, friend, I beg you, repent of your sin. Accept the grace of Jesus Christ. It's for you. If you're someone in here and you're struggling with the sin of homosexuality, friend, repent of your sins. Seek the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He will forgive you. He will make you new. Friend, if you're struggling with gender identity, repent of your sin. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why are Christians so courageous? Is it just because we have strong backbones? No, it's because we believe in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's because I am a sinner saved by the same grace that everyone must be saved by. But that grace is non-negotiable. I don't get to define it. I don't get to excuse my pet sins. Neither do you. Neither does anyone. We stand against sin. Why? Because we know sin invites the wrath of God. But even more than that, the wrath of God can be appeased by the grace of God. He's gracious. He's forgiving. If we will just accept the finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, God doubles down on the call for strength and courage because the Canaanites were going to stand against Israel in their conquest for the Holy Land. And in that text, God promises that Joshua shouldn't be afraid, which he was. If you see anything in Scripture that says, don't be afraid, assume everyone is. So now, if you, God never looks at you and says, don't be afraid. And you're like, oh, I hadn't even thought of it. No, just standing here being courageous. No, it's because you are afraid. Because that is what corruption does in our lives. That is the effect that sin has on us, is that we are tempted to trust the gods of this world more than we trust the true God. If you follow Jesus, no matter what resistance comes, listen to this, God will stand with you as you stand for him. You have no idea what God is capable of. But if you don't follow Jesus, here's the bad news. If you don't follow Jesus, you cannot claim that promise. If you don't follow Jesus, he makes no promises to walk with you. He makes no promises to stand with you. As you're just going out on a whim and a prayer with no objective root, with no anchor in reality, the only way you get the promises of God is if you live the life that God calls you towards. Friends, I'll tell you, courage that counts is all about believing Jesus more than you believe anyone else. Do you believe Jesus more than you believe anyone or anything else? Jesus does warn us, though, in John 16, 33, there will be tribulation. He does. Know what he says. Jesus, at the end of his garden discourse, he says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. I want peace. But then he says, in the world you will have tribulation. Those seem completely polar opposites to me. Lord, how can I have peace if I'm going to have tribulation? I have peace when you remove tribulation. I have peace when you remove resistance. I have peace when I get to sit in my recliner all the time. I have peace when everything's going my way. Here's what Jesus says. He says, they're not polar opposites. He says, take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. I've overcome the world. What Jesus is saying is, no matter what tribulation you walk into, no matter what resistance you walk into, no matter what the world says, Jesus has overcome everything. How? Resurrection. He rose from the dead. Friend, I'll tell you, following Jesus isn't an easy path. Raising children, which is our, our median age here, is people who are having babies. 
right there. Raising children in a negative world is not easy. It's not easy. Standing for Jesus is difficult, but it is worth it. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. He wins every time. The threats of unbelievers are fleeting. They will not ultimately stand. This is God's world. The gospel is true, and Jesus has already won through the resurrection. Here's the great news. God will bless us if we follow Jesus Christ. Because, friends, you can kill me today, and I will be alive in the presence of God in an instant. I'll be standing right before him. Because of the gospel, I can't lose. Jesus has already won. If you follow Jesus Christ, there is no losing. There is only winning because Jesus rules and reigns over the world and over the universe. We often quote Romans 8, 28 when tragedy strikes for good reason. It's understandable. It isn't just something, though, that you apply to the future. It's a promise that you need right now. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, we know. I love that. We know. There's no question. We know this. Those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Remember, the presupposition there is you're following Jesus. That's what it means to love God. That's what it means to be called according to His purpose. But what's the good news? It's all good. It's all going to work out to good. It's all going to work out to the glory of God. And that should give you a bold confidence that you will wager your life on the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we must have the confidence to walk into this world, stand for truth in all things. And when unbelievers send lies down the pipe of culture, we will stand and we will say, no, that is not true. Let God be true, though every man a liar. Why? So that when their false gods are exposed, and they will be, they will have a place to turn to when they repent of their sin. They will have a home to come to when they realize the bankruptcy of their folly. They will realize that Jesus doesn't just win. Jesus saves. And He saves a sinner like me. And He saved a sinner like you. And He has enough grace for every unbeliever in the world, we must tell them that. A few application points this morning. Number one, discipleship prepares you for resistance. Discipleship prepares you for resistance. Don't walk out into this world ill-equipped. Some of you are choosing that. It's foolish. You will not be able to stand in the day when you don't have the equipment that discipleship gives you. You need a support system. Discipleship gives you that too. Secondly, live for a gospel worth defending. If your gospel is only good enough for when you die, it's not that great of a gospel. It's more like an insurance policy. You like to have it, but you hope you never have to use it. <laughs> All right? The gospel shouldn't be like that. The gospel's good news. The gospel gives you strength. The gospel changes your life. Thirdly, it is loving to expose lies. It's loving. It's loving. They need the truth. Number four, Christianity is superior. Why? Because it's true. Because it's true. Some of you think you need a PhD to defend the faith. No, you just need to be able to expose truth. And you need to be able to expose lies. 
That's it. The scripture tells you, this is what sin is. This is what righteousness is. Go for righteousness. Don't go for sin. You don't need a PhD for that, friends. And then finally, courage is sourced in trusting God more than anything else. You will have courage when you've gone all in on your faith. You will have courage when faith is more valuable to you than anything. You will have courage when you long for God's reward more than you long for anything else in this world. But here's what else you'll have. You'll have a contagious faith when you trust God more than anyone else because that is what the world needs. That is what they are longing for. 